Our first lesson comes from Philemon, beginning at the first verse. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our fellow worker, to Philemon, our beloved brother, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that meets in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. For I hear of your love and your faith towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet I prefer to appeal to you for love's sake. I, Paul, an old man and now prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, my very Heart. I would have been glad to have kept him with me that he might serve on your behalf during my imprisonment in the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent so that your goodness would not be by compulsion, but according to your will. For perhaps this is the reason he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What good news does the church have for our secular age? We live in an age now, unlike any other time in human history, where the preferred view of the world is that God and any sense of divinity, spiritual reality is not a given, but in fact, the preferred option is to say, the world is all there is. This is the secular age that we live in. It's like the captain of the sinking ship who yells out over the passengers, is there anyone here who knows how to pray? And one man puts his hand up and the captain says, good, you pray. The rest of us are going to put life preservers on because we're short one. <laughs> I mean, that's the sense of disdain that the secular age has towards belief. The idea that prayer, a sense of God and spirituality more and more is a dangerous, unhealthy thing. But fear not, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel still works in every generation. The question we need to ask instead is, how do we speak faithfully the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ into our secular age? And we need not be afraid because in fact, this creates opportunities for us. If we listen to the cultural voice, there's three particular questions among many that are being asked in the secular age. The question of love. Is there love? Can I attain it? Can I keep it? Is there purpose? Is there meaning? And again, can I find it? Can I attain it? Will it stay? 
And finally, is there justice? And could we even see it in our generation? Think about the films you watch. Think about the books you read. Think about what's in the media. These questions of love and purpose and justice are out there. And here's what's amazing is Paul, in this tiny letter to Philemon, addresses all three subjects. Last week, we saw that he began by looking at love. This week, he moves to purpose. Now, again, the background of this tiny letter in the New Testament, Philemon, is a prosperous man, Christian, living in Colossae. The Colossian church meets in his house. And Anesimus, his servant, his bond servant, his slave, has robbed him and run away. And while Anesimus was fleeing into Rome, he met the apostle Paul and was converted, became a Christian. And now Anesimus is being sent Home. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. The question is, what will happen as these two are reunited? See, Paul moves into purpose in our text today, and our culture desperately wants to know what purpose is and to find purpose. The Gallup polls looking at younger generations have come back with data to say that the emphasis even in the workforce has truly switched from paychecks to purpose. And in fact, LinkedIn, that networking app for businesses and professionals now says when consulting with corporations, that if you want to attract young talents in your corporation, you must articulate higher purpose. It's not just about ends meet. It's about making sure that this purpose is found. Paul, in this tiny letter, in just a few verses today, speaks of purpose in a way that our world desperately needs to hear about purpose. He talks about a purpose that can be discovered in the church. That there is a place on earth, it's called the church, where we can discover purpose like we've never discovered it before. But not only discovering purpose, but we can have purpose defined for us. Let's get specific. What is the purpose? And it's here defined in this letter. But not only description of how we will discover purpose and how we will ultimately um, define that purpose, but a major question that we all face in the question of purpose is, is it durable? Paul presents a durability of purpose, a purpose that lasts in every season of our lives. And so he begins with the question of discovery of purpose. Verse 11, if you're looking with me in Philemon, verse 11, he says, Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is useful to me and to you. Useful, Paul is saying in verse 11, he's playing a little name game, having a little fun with Anesimus' name, because Anesimus actually means useful. That's what his name means. Anismus means profitable, useful, Mr. Useful. And so what he's saying here in verse 11 is he was formerly useless. He formerly wasn't living up to his name, Mr. Useful, but now he is, in tr he is truly useful. He's Mr. Useful, truly. But what's interesting is Paul isn't just saying that Anismus is now useful because he's, you know, taken some leadership seminars, he's turned over a new leaf, he's acquired some new skills. Ah, finally he's useful. 
No, Paul is saying something much more profound because the word play continues when you realize that when he says useless, the word useless is actually in Greek the word akrestos, useless, akrestos, which sounds just like in Greek akristos, which means without Christ. In other words, what Paul is trying to say in a profound way is Mr. Useful here was akrestos. He was useless because he was formerly akrestos. He was without Christ. Now he has found Christ and he's found his usefulness. He's found his purpose. What Paul is saying is that in his conversion to Christ, Anesimus has finally discovered purpose. Finally found usefulness and purpose. Now, I'll tell you, before I was converted, such a statement would have hugely offended me. I mean, are you saying, Pastor, are you saying, Paul, the apostle, that the only meaning and purpose that can be found in the world is found in the church? That outside the church, there's no meaning, there's no purpose? And you've heard that kind of thing said in some churches, I'm sure. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, tries to answer the question of whether we can find purpose and meaning without God. And he says effectively, yes and no. Can we find meaning and purpose without God? Yes and no. Yes, Keller says, it is quite possible to find great purpose in the ordinary tasks of life apart from knowing the answers to the big questions about our existence. But also no. No, you can't find meaning without God in the sense that secular meanings are created by us. And therefore, they're subjective and wholly dependent on our feelings. These created meanings, as Keller calls them, are more fragile and thin than discovered meanings given to us by God. Meanings that are inherent, meanings that are assigned, meanings that are not dependent upon us. So the point is, yes, we can find meaning in this life without God, but the question we'll be asking always, is this a meaning that will last? I mean, will I give myself to this particular cause for a decade of my life, only on the other end of it, to realize that wasn't really where I was to give my life to? Again, we create a sense of meaning without God. But instead, what Anesimus has found is by meeting Christ, Christ can give him purpose and meaning. Christ can have him discover this purpose and meaning in him. Because if we're honest about this concept of conversion, that there is a God in the universe who in fact meets us personally and we turn our lives to him, how, if that is true, how can our whole life not change? I mean, if the one who is at the very center of creation, the very center of the universe, come into relationship with us, how can that not immediately start recasting questions of meaning, purpose, what matters in this world. We read these words in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And then he goes on in verse 21 to say, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that center of the universe, that one through whom everything was made and for whom everything was made, has reconciled 
in his body of flesh, by his death, you and I, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach to God. See, this is the one who's at the very center of the universe. And when we come into relationship with him, everything around us has to change. I think of the St. Patrick's breastplate, right? This declaration of how central Christ is in every part of our lives. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. He goes on, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. Christ has come into Anisimus's life. Purpose and meaning therefore has come into his life. His whole universe is being restructured around this new relationship with Jesus. As C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if it's, if it's true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Right? It, you cannot have Christ come into your life as sort of an additional appendage to your life. If Christ comes into our lives, our whole lives, our sense of meaning and purpose must shift around him. This is the place where we discover new purpose. As Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes these words. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, may gain Christ and be found in him. Everything changes for Anisimus because he knows Christ. He discovers Christ and therefore discovers purpose. But Paul goes further because the question is, what does that look like? Okay, I discover Christ, I discover purpose. Lay that out for me, Paul. And he does. He goes on to define what this purpose looks like. You see, Paul does not define Anisimus's purpose with a role or with a job. Instead, he defines Anisimus's purpose with a life, a new life. Look at verse 15. He says in verse 15, for this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you. Now, if we're talking about purpose here, literally in the Greek, Paul says, for this purpose, he was parted from you. In other words, that God, in this horrible thing of separation with the thieving and the running away and all of that, that somehow through all of that, God is working out his purposes in this. Why? So that you may have him back forever. I mean, what, what Paul is saying, and we're going to see more next week with this whole question of emancipation, right? You want to say, okay, Anisimus, Philemon, you're going to live together forever now because you're in Christ. So this whole runaway slave thing, this thievery, 
it's going to have to get sorted out. I mean, think about that in our own lives. Think about the people who we really struggle with, who are also fellow believers. We're going to live with them forever. It, it sure is something to think about and pray about, isn't it? Next week, we'll see more of how Paul presses into this question of emancipation. But for now, he's simply identifying the life. He's saying, listen, this is the purpose now that has been given to Philemon, to, to Anesimus. He now is a forever person. He's now an eternal purpose. Uh, well, eternal person with an eternal purpose. He, in his life, will now live forever, right? It's not a role. It's not a job. The definition of purpose here is this new life. This new life in Christ. Paul's point is that Anesimus' usefulness, his purpose, is living this new, forever, eternal life in Christ. Again, we spend lots of time trying to talk about job and vocation and role, and those are important questions. But in doing so too much, we can create this false dichotomy, right? I got my work and my role and then I got my life over here, right? That work-life balance we always talk about. As if, as Wendell Berry says, you can actually commute from work here to life there. It's our whole life. What Anesimus has been given is a new life that is going to go on forever. And in this new life is found his definition of purpose. And the word that we give to that new life, that purposeful new life, is the word Christ-like, Christ-likeness. As Romans chapter 8 says, those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What Anesimus has been given is a new life. And in that new life in Christ that goes on forever, the purpose is to become more like Jesus. To be more like Christ. I mean, in our passage today from Matthew chapter 4, we read about Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. You know, sees Andrew and, Andrew and Peter and James and John. And what does he say to them? He says, follow me. Follow me. And what's amazing about that language of follow me is you've got to remember Jesus is a rabbi. Right? Already by this point, he's a known rabbi. And a rabbi walks up to a person and says, follow me. Do you know what that means in the first century? When a rabbi asks a person to follow them, what he's saying is, I want you to literally learn my life. Come and follow me in such a way that you learn the way I live, the way I teach scripture, the way I understand God, the way I live my life before God. And in fact, this whole idea of how different rabbis would live out their life before God, how they would interpret Torah, how they'd live their life, it was referred to as the rabbi's yoke. They had their own particular yoke. This was the way of discipleship following this rabbi. And so all of a sudden you understand when Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he's saying is come and learn my life. Live my life. This is the promise of discipleship. That you cannot be walking with Jesus. You cannot be following Jesus. And his full intent, his purpose on your life is not that you would become like him. Christ-likeness is at the very core of the purpose of Christianity. 
And this, of course, is why we are so horrified by church scandals. As we see the Vatican concluding days of discussion again about sexual abuse within the church, why are we so scandalized by abuse in the church? I mean, we open up our news feeds, we see scandal all the time. We're not as offended except when it's the church. Why? We're, we're offended at scandal within the church because the church is supposed to look like Christ. That's why we're so offended at the core. Our calling is to become like him. As C.S. Lewis says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself, simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose than to make men and women into little Christs. And it's going to look different in each of us, isn't it? We're all, we're all going to live out this Christ-likeness in unique and special ways, right? I think of Bernie, who is our sexton in Ottawa. You know, the guy in the church that, you know, cleans up, janitorial, fixes things up, kind of security, presence. Now, we were in a downtown church, an inner city church in Ottawa for 10 years. And so in that context, we had our front door opening every 15, 20 minutes with people coming through the door, mostly people who lived on the street, especially in the winter coming in. And one of Bernie's roles was he would greet these folks, would take them into our kitchen, would make them a sandwich, pour them a cup of coffee, and would sit and chat with them for a few minutes. Now, Bernie was perfect for this job because he was a retired Mountie. You know the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? This tall French Canadian, and he just had a huge heart. And he would, he would often say to the clergy, you know, who he worked with. He said, ah, I, 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 I cannot do what you do. You know, you have got the great job of preaching God's word. And I, I just do these. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about. You can't really understand that accent, can you? <laughs> the point is that he would say, you know, you know, you all do the amazing things in the church and I do nothing. And we'd say, no, no, Bernie, you've got an amazing ministry. And I saw that one day when I was, I was at church alone. Bernie was off and the door opened and in came one of our regulars from the street. And he looked at me and I was wearing my collar and I said, hey, and he said, he said is Bernie here? And I said, no, Bernie's away. I said, but uh, I, could, I could take you in the kitchen. We'll make you a sandwich, make you a cup of coffee. You could chat. I said, you know, sandwich, coffee, chat with the rector. And he looked me up and down and said, I'll come back when Bernie's back. I mean, we all live into this Christ-like purpose in different unique ways that will bless the world. But this purpose is not about what Anesimus can do. This purpose that is defined here is who Anesimus can be now in Christ. See, Paul is telling us that there is a place called the church where we can discover purpose as we discover Christ. But not only that, where this purpose can be defined specifically to say, this is about Christ's likeness. This is about a whole life that's being transformed to be like Jesus. But finally, he goes on and ends to say that this place, the church, is a place where you find a purpose that's durable. A purpose that will last in every season and every circumstance. Verse 16 Paul's very careful with his wording here where he says in verse 16, you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant. 
Now, again, like I said, next week we'll get into the question of forgiveness and emancipation. But hear what he says. He doesn't say in verse 16, you may have him back forever, no longer a bondservant, but specifically no longer as a bondservant. And the reason he emphasizes that is at this point in the letter, you have no idea whether Onesimus is going to be freed from his servitude or not. We, in fact, you could assume, based on the cultural norms, that the best Onesimus can hope for is he just doesn't get tortured. But he's going right back to his role as a servant. He's going right back to his role as a slave. And that's why Paul here in verse 16 says, he comes back to you no longer as a bondservant. He may well be a bondservant, but you will never treat him as a bondservant again. As J.B. Lightfoot says, though Onesimus might remain a slave, he could no longer be as a slave. A change had taken place in him independent of his possible emancipation. In Christ, he had become a brother the no longer as a slave is an absolute fact, whether Philemon chose to recognize it or not. The point is, what happens if Anesimus has to return to his station as a slave? There's all this wonderful word about, oh, I've discovered purpose and it's been defined as Christ's likeness. Does that just go out the window if he goes back to this role of slavery? Absolutely not. Paul's point is this. Slave or free, your purpose remains. Free as a freed slave, even in bondage, in weakness, in strength, in all seasons and in all stations and in all circumstances, this purpose, living as Christ in the world, remains. It's durable. See, this change has been made regardless of circumstances. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This status is unchangeable. And this status is not dependent on our circumstances. Our purpose is not dependent on our strength. Can you hear that again? Our purpose is not dependent on our strength. Because hear the gospel. Your purpose wasn't given to you originally because of your strength. This purpose given to you was given to you and I in weakness, in sin, in brokenness, in very death itself. We were as weak as we could be when Christ came and gave us this purpose. So why would this purpose be reliant on our strength today? We are constantly asking the question, will my purpose remain even if my strength and my station does not remain? How does a stay-at-home parent hear this text? How does a business executive, how does a married person or a single person or a divorced person or a widowed person or an unemployed person, or a strong person, or a very weak person, hear this. Paul's point is this. In joy or in sorrow, in richness or in poverty, in sickness or in health, living or dying, this purpose remains. Some of you know 
John and Fran Petroff. Fran went home to be with her Lord on Friday. It was sudden. And as I had the unique opportunity, by the way, the service will be here in this room on Tuesday at 1030 for Fran. But as I had the unique opportunity of being there at hospital side with John and the whole family gathered around Fran, here's what I found amazing. The testimonies that were being shared, the songs, the prayers, the scriptures read, but those testimonies that were pointing to a life, a life given to Christ, a life of love, a life where that purpose was lived out, that Christ-likeness, how much her life still in that moment was beaming with Christ-likeness. And here's my point. What is the weakest place that a human being can be but at that moment of death, in the most weakest condition, even in dying, this purpose was durable and present and real in that room. Christ-likeness. This purpose is durable like no other purpose. What good news does the church have for this secular age? Paul speaks of a place, the church, where purpose can be discovered as we discover Christ, the God who made us all. Paul speaks of a place, the church, where purpose is defined as Christ-likeness and that our activities and our practices and our habits are about forming Christ more and more in each of us. And Paul speaks of a place, the church, where this purpose is durable, where this purpose given to you and to me in every moment, in every condition, in every season remains. Let us hear this word from Paul let us again refresh our commitment to this purpose given to us to be like Christ. For this is the only thing that will ultimately remain. And this is the only purpose that will save this world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.